The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation 19. To continue in our study here, Revelation 18 ends with uh, the sound of a great crash. We could hear it by faith. The fall of Babylon the Great, the image given there is of a mighty millstone, a huge stone cast down with violence into the ocean. And uh, with such violence, Babylon the Great will be cast down. And we've learned that Babylon the Great refers to the world system of satanic allurements and temptations and also the persecution of the church. It's part of Babylon the Great and Babylon is going to fall with a great crash, a loud sound of of violence. And even in that chapter in Revelation 18, a sound of lamentation as the worldlings, the Babylonians so to speak, are lamenting the fall of Babylon. They're grieving over it and mourning. And thus ends Revelation 18. As we come to Revelation 19, there's a different loud sound. It's a loud sound of hallelujah, of triumph and victory and, and worship and praise. Four times in this section, Revelation 19, 1 through 10, this word hallelujah is boomed out and we can hear it by faith. Word of praise ripping apart the lamentation of the worldlings, of the citizens of Babylon. That they're going to give it their The cry of their fallen city, Babylon the Great. Hallelujah, hallelujah. That's what this section of Revelation is all about. Babylon is fallen. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. And heaven's citizens couldn't be more thrilled. Babylon's history, as we saw, is dark and sordid. There was a moment in time, a long time ago, when earth had one language... One culture. And the citizens of Babylon, Babel at that time, built a tower to reach up to heaven. And all earth had one language. And God confused the languages at that time. And scattered the people to the distant parts of the earth. Now God has sent messengers to those distant shores and coastlands and islands... And some of the inhabitants of almost every tribe and language and people and nation have believed in Christ and they are assembling in worship even this very day. As the sun makes its circuit around the earth, 24 time zones and goes around, there are people assembling all over the world. And in many of those congregations, they will say this same word, pronounced roughly the same way, hallelujah. I have been in assemblies in many nations, in Japan, in China, in Kenya, Pakistan. I've been in India. I've been in Europe, in Greece. I've been in many nations. And I've heard that word, slightly different pronunciations in different places, but it's hallelujah. It's a Hebrew word. It's literally a plural imperative. I'm not from the south originally. I've not learned to say all y'all yet. And I probably never will. Thank you for welcoming me and my northern family into your southern culture. But you know what I mean when I say all y'all. Praise Yahweh. 
It's a plural imperative. Or praise Jehovah. Praise, simply praise the Lord. It's human-centered with us in view. We the creatures, we the people, we the redeemed are being commanded to praise Yahweh. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Heavenly worship. That is the context of this chapter. Now the context is, is vital. We need to understand it. Look for a moment at verse 3. Revelation 19, 3. Powerful. Again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her rises forever and ever. That is a verse, the longer you think about it, the more, to some degree, initially troubling it would be. We need to understand why heaven's inhabitants are celebrating eternal torment, smoke rising forever and ever. So we need to step back and look, I think, at the whole book now and just get a sense of where we're at in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, as we've said many times, means unveiling. The apocalypsis, the pulling back of a veil. And we're able to see by faith in the word of God the invisible. What is it that Revelation shows us? Revelation 1.1 tells us right away. The unveiling, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so above all we have Christ revealed in ways that no other book of the Bible reveals him. Jesus himself is the revelation of God. He is the image of the invisible God. So through Christ, we can see God more clearly through this book of Revelation. But secondly, right there in the first verse, we have the future unveiled as well. Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Right there at the very beginning. So the future is unveiled. We're going to see things in the, in the future. Now the Apostle John who wrote this book down for us and who shows up in the text unusually today was in exile on the rocky island of Patmos because of the testimony he had borne for Jesus. And he has a vision of the resurrected glorified Christ walking among seven golden lampstands. And we come to find out that these seven golden lampstands represent literal churches in the province of Asia, right near Patmos. But the number seven being a number of, of idyllic perfection, there's a sense in which these literal seven churches represent all the local churches there ever will be. For us now looking back over 20 centuries that ever have been, including us, local churches. And it's a picture of the resurrected Jesus Christ walking among those churches and ministering to them. And then in Revelation 2 and 3, we have the letters to the seven churches in which Jesus has something to say to each of those seven churches. And those churches represent, they were literal churches, but they represent the strengths and weaknesses and the, the challenges and successes and sins of local churches throughout all of history. And so we are admonished in every case, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, and suppose take in the Revelation 2 and 3 messages because we are a local church and we need to hear what Christ would say to us now. But then in Revelation 4, John has a vision of a door standing open in heaven. And he hears a voice inviting him, commanding him, come up here. And he's enabled, empowered through the Spirit to go through that doorway into the heavenly realms. And there he sees the central reality there is in the universe, the throne of God. A throne with someone seated on it. It's a throne of Almighty God. And there are these concentric circles, the 24 elders, and they're the, the, the four living creatures. And there's a hundred million angels, and they're all worshiping God, the Creator, in Revelation 4. 
You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. So God the creator is celebrated. It's vital for us to understand this. God created planet earth and everything in it. All of the resources. Which Babylon the great used for idolatry. God made it all. It's his. Then in Revelation 5 we have depicted for us a scroll in the right hand of him who's seated on the throne. With writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And a cry goes out, a call goes out. Who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? But there's no one found in heaven or earth or under the earth who's worthy to take the scroll. And John weeps and weeps because no one is found worthy. But he's told, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. And he saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. The lion and the lamb alike, Jesus For the rest of the book of Revelation, he's called Lamb. Never Lion, just Lamb. Because this book is written for us. And to us, he's Lamb. But to them, to the outsiders, he is a lion. But he takes the scroll, and in Revelation 6, he breaks open the seven seals. And with the breaking open of the seven seals, there is initiated a series of events on earth that bring us to the end of the world. I believe that the seven seals that he breaks open are just the beginning of birth pains. Although it does resolve at the end with the sixth seal. In which stars fall from the sky. The removal of every mountain and island from its place. So the the end of all things is, is foretold. And then in Revelation 6, 15 through 17, it says, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? Who is going to survive When Almighty God pours out His wrath. When the Lamb of God pours out His wrath. Revelation 7 is the answer to that question. Who is able to stand? There is a picture of the redeemed. From every tribe and language and people and nation. Including from every tribe of of Israel. And they they are sealed and they are chosen. And they are the redeemed. And this is the success of the gospel. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Revelation 7, 9 and 10, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb and they were wearing white robes and they're holding palm branches in their hands and they're calling out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Oh, to be part of that multitude. Are you? Through faith in Christ, are you going to be there? Are you going to be covered in white? Covered by the atoning work of Christ. That's the point of everything. That's the point of redemptive history. Is that multitude around the throne in heaven forever. Now in Revelation 8 and 9, we have the beginning of what I consider to be the final phase of human history. What many call the great tribulation. What many call the final seven years. Starts with the seven trumpets. As you read over the seven trumpets, you see cataclysms that have never happened. Nothing like them on planet Earth. So they're yet to come. It's in the future. It's not, even in John, not only in John's future, but also in our future, I believe. 
When the first trumpet blows and a third of the living uh, green plants and a third of the trees and all the plants, a third of the plants and all the green grass is burned up. And then the second trumpet sounds and a third of the sea is turned to blood, killing a third of the living creatures in the sea. And then the third trumpet is sound and a third of the fresh waters are turned bitter. And then the fourth trumpet sounds and a third of the sun, the moon and the stars are struck, reducing their light on the earth. And then the, uh, the, the fifth uh, trumpet uh, sounds and demons from the abyss pour up, billowing like smoke from a furnace. And they, they plague the earth and, and the, the inhabitants of the earth are bitten like with scorpion stings. And they long for death and it goes on for five months. And then a six trumpet sounds and a huge demonic army moves out over the surface of the earth and kills a third of the population of the earth. We've not seen anything like this ever in human history. These terrifying judgments will change the face of the earth and they will usher in the final phase of the human history. They'll erase, I think, national boundaries and send the human population into an upheaval. Now, John pauses his narrative at that point to give us a glimpse into the invisible spiritual realm. First, Revelation 10, a mighty angel who gives John a scroll and he's supposed to eat it and he's then told to prophesy to many nations and that he does by the writing of the book of Revelation. Revelation 11, the blowing of the seventh trumpet uh, ushers in the final phase of human history. And then uh, Revelation 12 gives us an insight into the spiritual realm, which is vital. We need to understand. We are so materialist in the West. We're scientific. We don't see the spiritual realm. We need to see it by faith. Behind all of this wickedness, there is an enemy, Satan. Portrayed in Revelation 12 as a giant dragon also called a serpent, the, the devil, who leads the whole world astray. And he's portrayed in that chapter, Revelation 12, as mighty and powerful, but also defeated again and again and again. He's far more powerful than we are, and yet he's thwarted again and again. He stands in front of the pregnant woman to devour the male child, but he can't do it. And he pursues the woman, he's going to try to destroy her, but he can't do it. He tries to take over heaven, but he can't do it, and is thrown down to earth with a third of the stars. Referring, I think, to the demons. And he tries to pursue the, the offspring from the woman. The woman, I believe, is Israel. The offspring are believers who follow Christ. And it says in Revelation 12, 17, the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. A vast, vicious, satanic persecution on the church. Believers in Christ. Revelation 13 reveals Satan's masterpiece of destruction, the consummation of what he sought to do in the human race, the beast from the sea, a worldwide wicked empire that unifies all nations under one head, and that one head is the Antichrist. So basically then the beast becomes this one person, although there's an empire under him. And then there's a beast from the land that becomes the false prophet, and he organizes a worldwide religion obsoleting all the other religions and there's a focus on this one man and all the peoples of the earth who are not chosen before the foundation of the world. They're not elect. All of the others are going to bow down and they're going to worship the beast and they're going to worship his image and they're going to bow down and they're going to receive uh, the, the mark of the beast on their forehead or on their arm, their hand, and, and they'll be able to uh, buy and sell only by receiving that mark of the beast. This is a, a vast satanic consummation of what he sought to do in the human race. This worldwide empire. 
Revelation 14 shows the incessant warnings and pleadings that God does, both through human evangelists who do not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes, and they're boldly, courageously witnessing in that final phase of human history. And there's dire warnings to people to not receive the mark of the beast, lest they burn in hell forever and ever, Revelation 14. Revelation 16 shows the seven bowls, the seven last plagues that God causes to fall from heaven to earth, preparing the way for the end of the world. After these, the world cannot long survive, not, not even for weeks, I don't think. The first bowl results in ugly, festering sores on earth's inhabitants. The second bowl results in the entire ocean being turned to blood and every living creature in the sea dying. The third bowl results in all the flesh, fresh water of the earth turned to blood. This is why I say we can't long endure after that. It's going to end within a very short amount of time. The fourth bowl is poured out and the sun scorches people with blistering heat. And the fifth bowl is poured out and the, and the world is plunged into a deep darkness. And the sixth bowl is poured out and, and a huge army is gathered from all over the world by demonic influence gathered for the final battle called Armageddon. And it is to fight that battle that Jesus returns. Next week we'll talk about the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19, second half of the chapter. So he comes to fight that final battle. Then the book of Revelation pauses and says, let me explain to you the world. Let me explain to you Babylon the Great. Revelation 17, she's portrayed as a harlot, a prostitute, alluring the, the world to wickedness and sin and sexual immorality. And also drinking the blood of the saints. So there's the alluring or the persecution. This is what Babylon the harlot does. This great city that rules the whole earth. Then Revelation 18. Babylon the great is that world system of commerce and materialism and prosperity and the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. That's Babylon the great. And in Revelation 18 she is cast down, destroyed forever. Jesus came out of the temple and said to his disciples, do you see all these stones, these massive stones? Not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. It was just one building. It's the temple. This chapter, Revelation 18, saying all of the stones are going to be cast down. And great will the crash be. These are people that built their house on the sand. And the rain came and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. That's the judgment of God. And it fell with a great crash. So that's the sound at the end of Revelation 18. And now we get Revelation 19, a sound of celebration. We have to understand it in the context of all of this. Because other than that, Revelation 19.3 will make very little sense to us. It will seem cruel. We think, what kind of twisted people are going to celebrate the smoke of her torment rising forever and ever? So we come now to Revelation 19. And in order to do so, we need to keep in mind the call that Revelation 18, 4 and 5 has given to us. Come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon, my people. So that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not share in any of her plagues. That is what the Lord is calling on us to do as we, as we come out. And the overall message of this section is hallelujah. Praise the Lord. For in his sovereign kingly rule, he has destroyed the great harlot of Babylon. And he has rescued his bride from her filthy clutches. So we have four hallelujahs saying that. Four times hallelujah sounds in this section. In the middle of the chapter, God himself commands the people to praise him. And this praise is overpowering. 
It is jubilant. It cascades and flows in a mighty, overpowering roar. And yet the topic seems difficult for us to understand. Seems difficult for us to grasp how it could be. I would say, as I've said before, any reticence that comes from joining the heavenly celebration comes, I think, in part from the fact that we're still a little bit hungover by the cup in the hand of the great harlot. We have drunk from that cup and we are still overcome by a haze in our minds and our souls. And when we get to heaven, that will be clear, cleared up, and we'll see everything clearly. So that's an overview of the chapter. Let's look at the details. Begins in verse 1 and 2. Hallelujah, for Babylon is destroyed. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So who does the celebrating? Well, it says, a great multitude in heaven. They are the redeemed from every tribe and language and people and nation on earth. They were protected by God's power in this present evil age. And they are even now celebrating in heaven God's victory. Babylon is like a witch with an intoxicating spell she can cast on people. If you look back to Revelation 18.23, speaking to Babylon, by your magic spell, all nations were led astray. The word magic spell comes from the Greek pharmakeia, from which we get pharmaceutical or pharmacy. So it's a sense of like, like we're drugged here. We're drugged. Or you could imagine us being stung by the massive spider in the Lord of the Rings, Shelob. And we've been stung by her and wrapped up with sticky webbing. Not dead. And the spider's going to come later and devour us. That's how I picture the pharmacaea of Babylon. So we're, we're in this like drug-induced haze. Even we who have been converted, even we who have the mind of Christ, we still don't see the world like we should, not like we will in heaven. But in heaven at last, our, our heads and our hearts will be clear and we'll breathe in the heavenly air and, and we will see the glory of the kingdom of God and we'll see the despicable and wicked and twisted nature of Babylon. How do they celebrate? Well, they celebrate with mighty voices. They don't do anything halfway in heaven. They're full on celebrating. There's no hesitation about this. Mighty voices they're singing. Think about the Lord's Prayer where it says, May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us praise like they do in heaven. What do you say? Mighty voices praising God, saying, Hallelujah, heavenly worship. And they say hallelujah, as they said, praise the Lord, all of you folks, all, all y'all, there I said it, all right, all of you, join me in praising the Lord. Can't praise alone, you need to join me, you need to come along with me, and let's praise the Lord together. Plural imperative. Babylon the great will never trouble us again. We will never be allured by her again. We will never be stuck by her again. We will never have another wicked thought again. No more idolatrous thoughts. No more lustful thoughts. No more prideful, selfish thoughts. Those days are over forever. Hallelujah. 
This great enemy that was the world system is thrown down like a millstone to the bottom of the ocean. And they say salvation and power belong to our God. Note that word salvation. The redeemed in heaven know they were saved out of her. We were part of her. We were saved by God. And salvation belongs to our God. And the power belongs to our God. We couldn't have changed. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 13, Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? Neither can you who are accustomed to doing evil do good. You couldn't have changed. You couldn't have said, I don't like Babylon. I'm going to come over to the kingdom of heaven. It was impossible. But God took out the heart of stone and he gave you the heart of flesh. He saved you by his power. And you'll know it in heaven more than you even do now. We were controlled by the mind of the flesh. It says in Romans 8, 5 through 8, the mind, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of the flesh is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those controlled by the flesh cannot please God. You, however, you, however, are controlled by the Spirit, not by the flesh. If indeed the Spirit lives in you. How powerful is that? We were rescued out of that. Same thing in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 describes how we were at one time part of Babylon the Great. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But God, because of his great mercy, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages... We might be for the praise of his glory. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Salvation and power belong to our God. Or else we'd be down there with them. It takes power to save you. I think about it. I have such an engineering mind. And I love engineering machines. And I love the Saturn V rocket. The most powerful Rocket that man ever, ever designed. The, the heaviest, most powerful flying thing that the human race has ever devised. 7.5 million pounds of thrust. You can put 300,000 pounds into outer space. Why so much thrust? Because of the Earth's gravitational pull. Pulling us down. And that's what Babylon the Great is like. There's a pull on us. Back down to wickedness and sin. It took infinite power to save you. And so it says salvation and power belong to our God. Also the power of God is displayed in her, her crushing defeat. She's going to be powerful. In the Antichrist system it's, it's more powerful than Nazi Germany or the, the Iron Curtain ever was. The vast system of wickedness with Satan behind it. It's going to take incredible power to defeat it. It's nothing to God. It's not even going to be hard for Jesus. We'll see that next week. It's not a hard battle. 
Jesus is not going to sweat. But might and power, omnipotence on display at the destruction of Babylon. Salvation and power belong to our God. Also we see justice and righteousness. Verse 2 it says, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. She either enticed and allured Christians to sin, or she turned and crushed them and incarcerated them and seized their possessions and took away their freedom and tortured them and killed them. That's what Babylon the Great did. So it is true that she deserves to die, and it is just that she will die. True and just are God's judgments. And so therefore, the inhabitants of heaven show no reticence. They're not shrinking back. They're not hesitating to celebrate this. There's no pity at all in heaven for Babylon the Great. Look at verse 3. Hallelujah for Babylon's torment is eternal. It says, again, they shouted, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Revelation 19.3. Hallelujah for that. Obviously, this could be troubling to many of you. Why would the saints in heaven celebrate the eternal torment of human beings? Imagine if you heard someone say, such and such a person or group of people are going to suffer eternal torment in the lake of fire forever and ever. And the other person responded, praise the Lord. Think, wow, something's wrong. Something's off. But our hesitation to celebrate this final vision, keep that in mind. We'll get to that in a moment. But this is the final vision now. Shows how much we underestimate the damage of Babylon the Great. The damage that Babylon the Great did to us and to our brothers and sisters. We underestimate it. How wicked. And there's no smugness in heaven. Not at all. These heavenly worshipers, they're not smug. They know they were redeemed by grace through faith. In heaven we'll be sober-minded and we'll see it. And we will realize that God is just in what he did. We'll be like the angel. Remember the angel when he's pouring out the bowl on the, on the waters, the fresh waters? In Revelation 16, 5 and 6, he says, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. You're just because you did it. Everything God does is just. But then, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink as they deserve. So the angels are celebrating. So are the redeemed. They're just celebrating. And the smoke of her torment rises forever and ever. It's eternal, conscious torment. That's what hell is all about. Therefore, in heaven, the saints will be very aware of the damned. God the Father is not going to hide it from the children. We'll be very aware of it. Isaiah 66, 24 says, They will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. Final words of Isaiah's book. We will be very aware of the damned. Now you may say, why then did God make them? Why did he make these people? Why did he knit them together in, in their mother's wombs if they were just going to end up in eternal torment? The clearest answer to that question is in Romans chapter 9. In verse 22 through 24, Paul answers it this way. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath whom he prepared for, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to us? The objects of 
mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory. In other words, it was so that we would know how much grace was shown to us. So that we would be saved in such a way that we would be humbled forever by it. And by contrast, we would know what we deserved because we can see it. But in heaven, Revelation 21, 4, there'll be no mourning or crying or pain. No grief at all. Now, if you have a hard time putting that together, I understand because we're not there yet. We're not there yet. I'm going to talk about that, but we're in the, we're in the day of salvation now. And we yearn for individuals to come out of Babylon. And it's reasonable for us to weep as Jesus wept over Jerusalem. It's we- reasonable for us to have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in our hearts. Like Paul said in the beginning of that chapter in Romans 9, he had for unbelieving Jews. But we also need to look at Babylon, the system, properly. Don't be like Lot's wife, as Joel said earlier. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus said. Don't look back at what God is destroying in Sodom and Go- like Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone. Don't look back. Whoever tries to keep his life in Sodom or in Babylon will lose it. Don't try to hold on to your Babylonian life. But whoever loses his life will preserve it. Come out of her, my people. Revelation 18, 4. So that you will not share in her sins, you will not share in her plagues. Verse 4. Hallelujah, all heaven is agreed in this. There's no hesitation, no pocket of heaven, not, not sure. Everybody's celebrating. Look at verse 4. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God who is seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, hallelujah. So all the elders and living creatures and Everyone's together, 100 million angels, they're all falling down and they're saying amen to the fact that the smoke of her torment rises forever and ever. There's no hesitation about it. And Jesus in verse 5 even commands his servants to do this. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him both small and great. Now the voice from the throne means it's God's voice. Why do I say it's Jesus' voice? I don't know for certain that it's Jesus as opposed to the Father. But you know how he says... He calls to the disciples, my father and your father, my God and your God. So it's that kind of language he uses. He says, praise our God, you his servants. You who fear him, both small and great. So he's commanding you to praise God. To say hallelujah in your heart for the final destruction of this system of Babylon. While at the same time, weeping over individuals striving in reference to individuals that they be rescued, going as the moggers and as others do to serve individuals and share the gospel with them lest they also be destroyed. That's why we do missions. That's why we do evangelism. We're here in, in Durham and we should look on it as a city of destruction. Every city, every inhabitant should see it that way. All of these cities, not just one building, the stones be thrown down. Everything's going to be destroyed. We need to tell people. And there's grief and sorrow now. I'm just saying, in the future, there'll be none. We'll look back and we'll be delighted and and rejoice. And so verse 6, hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. It says, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Or in the King James Version, probably much more famous. Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. 
Why is it famous? Well, those of you that know Handel's Messiah have heard it before many times, every Christmas. This is where the Hallelujah chorus came from. This is where Handel got his text from. This mighty waterfall of praise, like the Niagara Falls, they're saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Handel in 1741, when he was writing Handel's Messiah, a friend came in and found him weeping over sheets of music strewn all over the room. And he said, I did think I saw God Almighty on his throne and heaven lay open before me. Whether I was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. So that was his reaction as God gave him a foretaste of this heavenly celebration. Heavenly celebration. Now, I didn't ask Wes to close in the holiday chorus today. I don't know that we could imitate the Niagara Falls sound here. I don't know, Wes, what do you think? You're willing to give it, give it a, a shot. But I think we're closing with a different song. But whenever you hear Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus, it's coming right from this. And they're celebrating the reign of the omnipotent God. Of the God who has all power in heaven and earth and under the earth. No one can hold back his hand. No one can resist him. No one can stop him. This almighty, omnipotent God reigns as a king over, over all things. Hallelujah. And this is the one who raised Antichrist up, I think, for this very purpose. As he said to Pharaoh, the wicked Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that, my, that I might display my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And so God allows monsters, tyrants to be raised up. And then he effortlessly defeats them. And finally, verse 7 and 8. Hallelujah, the Lamb's bride is ready. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So this tone of overpowering joy and celebration at what God has done. The destruction of Babylon was to make ready for the bride of Christ and her wedding day to come. Remember how we saw the contrast between the harlot of Babylon in Genesis 17 and the beautiful bride of Christ that we'll see in Gen uh, not Genesis, Revelation 21. Revelation 17, the harlot. Revelation 21 and 22, the bride. And how radiant she will be. And so she's gotten, gotten herself ready. Great joy comes from this. The, the triumph and the power. And God deserves all glory for this. And the, the time of the wedding banquet has come. A great strong metaphor for the celebration we're all going to have in heaven. As the bridegroom, Jesus, and the bride are, are joined together forever. And it says here that the bride has made herself ready. Very interesting here. Because in Revelation 21, she's made ready by God. She descends from God prepared. And so we see that, that partnership that we have in sanctification. Once we've come to faith in Christ, we are called on to purify ourselves from all unrighteousness. And to put sin to death by the power of the Spirit. And, and to do the works of mortification of sin, of holiness. The works of evangelism and service. We're supposed to do these works. And these Righteous acts are the linen, it says, that we are given to wear. And so we will have made ourselves ready. And it says it was granted to her to wear white. Though she was defiled, though she was sinful and corrupt, having come from Babylon, it was granted to her to wear white on her wedding day. 
Oh, what a gift of grace. We will be seen to be pure and holy on that day. And Christ has been getting her ready all of this time. You know how it says in that famous passage, you husbands have read, I hope, countless times. Husbands, Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word in order to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So he's got her ready. She's got herself ready and the time has come. Well, finally, we praise God that John wrote it down. Verse 9 and 10, the angel said, write for these uh, write these words. He says, these are the true words of God. And then he says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. God willed that this be written down. And you have, in this and many other such texts, your invitation to the wedding banquet. You're hereby invited to partake in the wedding banquet of the Lamb. You're hereby invited through the Word of God, through the Gospel. You're invited to take part in the wedding banquet of the Lamb. Now, Jesus told a parable about this. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to put on a wedding banquet for his son. And he sent out messengers saying, the the, the wedding banquet's ready, the oxen, fattened cattle have been butchered, everything's ready, come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention. They had no interest. They went off to their own businesses and their own lives. But there is an invitation now to all of you to come to the wedding banquet, to trust in Christ, to find forgiveness of sins, and you'll be covered in His imputed righteousness. And then the Spirit will come in you, and you'll begin to cover yourself with righteous works of holiness and and service to God. And you can get ready, and you're invited. And many will come from the east and the west, Matthew 8, and take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So you have your invitation now. Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest, and I will give you a place at the banquet table. Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, I don't know if John wishes that verse 10 didn't exist, but I'm going to read it anyway. At this I fell at the angel's feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do it. Stop. I'm a fellow servant with you. And with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So this is just the weakness of God's servants. The Bible is very honest about its heroes and its foibles and sins and rebellions and problems. And this was a problem. John was so overcome by this angel that he fell down and worshiped. And the angel told him to stop. He said, don't. Angels and the redeemed are fellow servants together. We're serving the same God. Worship God. By the way, it's great proof of the deity of Christ because he did accept worship. They would fall at his feet and worship him as God. Thomas at his resurrection said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed that I am God. And you should fall down and worship me. But the angel would not accept any worship. And that statement he makes the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy is worth a sermon all by itself on how throughout the Old Testament all of the prophets were pointing to Jesus. All of them. The spirit of prophecy was testifying to Jesus. But we don't have time for that. What are applications that we can take from Revelation 19, 1 through 10? Well, accept God's gracious invitation. You're invited to the wedding banquet now to leave Babylon, to flee Babylon and to come. What are you waiting for? 
What, what more gracious invitation could come? Listen to what it involves. All of your sins forgiven by the atoning blood of Jesus. All of them. You don't need to do any works to forgive yourself or justify or any of that. Just by faith, trust in Christ. Come to Christ. And this command stands over all of us. I've given it now three or four straight weeks. Come out of Babylon, O people of God, and be separate. Find out how the Babylonian spirit is in you. How are you worldly? How is your mind affected by Babylon? How is your heart drawn out after money and entertainment and pleasure and power and earthly things? What corrupting influences does Babylon the Great have on your heart? And come out and be separate. Jesus said, cut off your right hand or gouge out your right eye if it's leading you to sin. Take whatever decisive measures you can take to put sin to death. Come out and warn people. Warn people. Like John Bunyan did in, in seven, 1672 when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And, and Christian, the, the pilgrim in, in the allegory, realizes by reading the word, I live in the city of destruction. And he's, he wants to know, how can I escape? How can I get out of the city of destruction? Only one way. The evangelist came and pointed him to the light of the gospel in Christ. That's the way. Our job is to warn people. You're going to go to work or school tomorrow. You'll be surrounded by worldlings who are pursuing Babylonian things. Warn them. Talk to them about these very things. And God will use you as an evangelist, as a messenger to help people cross over from death to life. Close with me in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time we've had to study Revelation 19. 1 through 10. Thank you for the fourfold hallelujah that comes. We can only hear it by faith. But thank you for it. And Lord, enable us to worship you now on earth as you are presently worshiped in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.